This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now look, y'all, it is crazy outside. There's all kinds of stuff going on. If you are working a nine to five, you're probably stressed out about keeping your nine to five. If you don't have a nine to five, you're probably in the middle of trying to get a new nine to five. Or maybe you made the crazy leap to be a full-time entrepreneur like me. You got the world on fire all around you, middle of elections year. A lot of stuff going on. It's just, it's absolutely nuts, right? It's nuts outside. And I could definitely see, I'll speak for me. Look, for me, I know I be going to therapy on a regular basis. I believe in therapy, all right? Hashtag uh, black folks need therapy. Hashtag we all need therapy. We all need it. And for me, I can say if it wasn't for therapy being like an ongoing maintenance tool in my toolkit to help me stay level and help me realize that I'm okay, everything around me is okay, here's what I can control, that has been critical for me. And I would hope that if you have thought about therapy, and if, or if you haven't thought about therapy, shoot, let's say you're like, like I ain't got time for therapy, I got, I'm too busy trying to make sure that these plates keep on spinning, I hope that you check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online. It's completely convenient, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, keyword licensed therapist, and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge, which is incredible. It's very challenging to move around and find the right therapist for you. The fact that BetterHelp is providing that as just part of your experience is incredible. So find your support, get the help you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash corp today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash corp, C-O-R-P. Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate. Again, link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate, and ah, I'm still excited. I'm still excited because we're going through something new. Now, look, when you uh, were supposed to be tuning into this, we were supposed to have announced something and launched something. And you know what I'm saying? How projects go, delays happen. But I made a commitment to say that this week, y'all will be getting an update on something, right? I said that. I said something's going down. So, I can't launch the thing today. What I can do is talk to you about it. So in a week's time, so you're going to see a lot of like social media promotions and stuff in a week's time from now, living corporate's whole website, frankly, isn't our entire network and platform is going to be completely relaunched. Okay. So if you've been rocking with us for any amount of time, um, you've heard me say that like we have, Tons of conversations that center and amplify black and brown folks at work. Like we do this on a regular basis. This is like part of just who we are. It's intrinsic to our mission. We have genuinely hundreds of conversations 
with executives, entrepreneurs, activists, elected officials, authors, educators, other civic leaders. We're constantly talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in ways that decenter the white gaze and recenter historically marginalized perspectives and experiences. And so, you know, for me, as I was been thinking about living corporate and like the fact that like we sitting on all this thought leadership, we're sitting on all this IP. And even when we look at our own data, we see that there's people who are downloading content, listening to our podcast from like a year ago still. Right. And I just said, man, what does it look like to really operationalize, like to really get the most out of all of this learning, all of this media? And so living corporate, we're doing a few things. Uh, But the main thing we're doing is we're making it so that if you create a free profile on living corporate and you select the types of topics that you're interested in, you will get content pushed to you from our library. So if you're interested in being an entrepreneur and a founder, if you're interested in the VC space, if you're interested in leadership uh, development, if you're interested in being a better ally, if you're just interested in growing and developing your career, if you're interested in mental health and wellness, if you're interested in running for office, if you're interested in employee resource groups or like the future of ESG, then this is the platform for you because what's going to happen is you're going to select those different topics and then you're going to get content recommendations pushed to you. We're going to pull from our library and say, hey, you said that you like this. So here's this. Right. So that's the first thing. I'm really excited about that. And that's coming next week. The other thing that's coming next week is we really want to make sure that like we're mobilizing and taking advantage of the community that we have. Right. We have a ton of people listening to Living Corporate across our whole network of shows every single week. And so for me, I really want to make sure that we're also sharing other resources. And so that means for us, we're launching a job board. I can't wait for this. Uh, you know, well, I have to wait. I am waiting. I, I, I can wait in reality because the design team isn't ready. But <laughs> I am excited. It's a turn of phrasing. So I am excited, though, about the fact that not only will you get content recommendations, but you'll get job recommendations. There'll be tons of roles there, like b- based on like a ton of great brands and people that you've heard over the past few years. Some of them been very willing to be like launch partners with us. And you're going to continue to see that job board grow and mature. And so I'm really excited about that. The other piece I'm excited about when it comes to the job board is there's this narrative that when you talk about job boards for historically marginalized talent, people immediately go to entry level sales roles or entry level, um, again, like fresh out of college roles or junior roles, which there's an inherent um, amount of white supremacy and racism that goes into even thinking like that. But I believe that over time, we're going to be able to really push against that narrative and prove out that our listenership is not only junior um, new careerists, but also mid to late careerists as well. And so I'm just excited about living corporate and where we're continuing to grow this year. Again, this week was supposed to be big launch, but that's next week. So this week, what I'm asking everyone who listens to living corporate to do, if you're checking this out right now, is to tell folks about living corporate, share the podcast with them, make sure that you're subscribed to our newsletter. If you are subscribed, share the newsletter with somebody else, like help us as we get ready to launch something new. Again, we're doing a very short 
promo run. Not gonna kind of pop up like Beyonce. We're not Beyonce, you know what I'm saying? Even Drake got out the way for Beyonce. It's Beyonce. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, we're not we're not that level. We're not doing no surprise drops. We are going to let y'all know, and this is me letting y'all know, it's coming, right? So next week, make sure, if you're not following Living Corporate, if you're not tuned in, if you're not tapped in, make sure to do that. Speaking of which, today's episode, my conversation um, was with Dr. King, not Martin Luther King, another Dr. King, <laughs> um, organizational psychologist um, who uh, had, did a whole study on microaggressions and the psychology of microaggressions. That's why the name of the show is The Psychology of Microaggressions. And we talk a lot about the, the nuances of microaggressions as experienced by black professionals at work. I cannot wait for y'all to hear this conversation. But before we tap into that conversation, we're going to tap in with Tristan, okay? So we'll see you in a little bit. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. This week, let's talk about three things that may be missing from your job search. Being back on the job market can be tough. Applying to endless jobs, getting instant rejections, or worse, never hearing back at all. It all starts to take a toll on you after a while. But after working with over 500 job seekers, I've realized that we can avoid much of this if we took the time to figure out how to, and I use air quotes here, properly search for a job. I've noticed that three main things are missing from most job seekers search and puts them in a constant pattern of endless online applications. First is clarity. I often find job seekers rushing into finding a new job without ever taking the time to figure out what type of role they want. That's like expecting your GPS to tell you where to go without entering an address. You have to have a destination before figuring out the route to get there. Otherwise, you'll just idly sit and waste your gas. The same applies to your job search. If you aren't clear on what type of role you want to land, you can never devise a plan to help you secure it. If you don't get clear, you'll waste all your energy on applying, interviewing, and waiting for the wrong roles just to say you're making progress in your job search. The second thing your job search is missing is a professional brand. Building a professional brand allows people who've never met you to understand what you do, what type of results you create, and what value you would bring to an organization. Nowadays, people want social proof that you are who you say you are and do what you say you do. A professional brand provides that. If you can build a strong professional brand, you'll likely end up with companies and organizations reaching out to you to see if you're interested in roles. After cultivating my professional brand around career coaching and resume writing, I had universities reaching out about roles in their career centers, and I had companies reaching out about providing coaching at their organizations. The third thing missing from your job search is a strong network. You only have about a 2% chance of landing a role by applying online but referrals make you 15 times more likely to land a position. The bottom line is, a good network can help people stand out from the crowd and secure the job. You need to develop advocates who understand the value you bring and can vouch for you in spaces you're not in. Most people wait until they need a network to start building one or to warm up old connections, which is too late. Start building or warming up your network when you don't actually need them so the relationship is less transactional. If you focus on these three areas, you'll tighten up your job search process. 
While it may be a bit more work on the front end, I can guarantee it will reduce the amount of time you spend looking at and applying for roles. Thanks for tapping in with me this week. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Dr. King, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. You know, it's a pleasure. Listen, you know, I reached out to you because of the research um, that you published. Actually, you know, we connected a little while ago, um, but you, but it, but this hasn't been published that long. Like this was published in May, I believe. Yeah. Um, when thriving requires effortful surviving, delineating manifestations and resource expenditure outcomes of microaggressions for black employees. My goodness, that's a bar. Okay, so let's start off with what does this title mean? <laughs> that it, it, it's long when you read it out like that. Um, so we tried to get in there the key variables, right? So of course the paper's focusing on microaggressions, uncovering these subtle, ambiguous, daily forms of racism that persist, right? And that many organizations don't have policies to address. Um, and then the, the, the delineating piece is like the resource expenditure. So the work that black people have to engage in to deal with microaggressions that we don't have work looking at, you know, in the workplace, what's going on and how is it taking mental and physical energy away from your job, from learning opportunities, from other things we would like to focus on. Um, and in the beginning, the thriving requires effortful surviving. That was just something I really wanted to include to show that, you know, to survive, to succeed in these environments, there's a lot of extra work that Black people are having to engage in. You know, it's interesting. I know a little bit because I watched the video and I put the video uh, in the show notes for folks to check out. But um, the summary that you did of the study, talk to me about like how you approached this. So I, I have I talked to other professors and this other researchers like. I'm curious, did you go into this study with like some hypotheses or kind of like conclusions you figured that what you would reach um, and then also like what informed your approach on how you conducted the study and, and, um, and put this research together? Absolutely. So I have to shout out my friend, David Hollingsworth. I was, when I was at Spelman, he was at Morehouse and we were super close there. He's in clinical psych. He actually did, has already done a lot more in microaggressions. This is one of my first publications on microaggressions, but he and I had been saying for years, like, we want to collaborate, we want to do something. And so, you know, I'm in organizational psychology, looking at the work experience. And so he brought the idea to me about, you know, let's look at this phenomenon in the workplace. And I'm really interested in race and identity. And I also know that, you know, psychology suffers from a lack of diversity in our samples. We just don't have a lot of Black people's voices in these findings that we, you know, come up with or in these theories that we talk about. And so he and I came together and we were like, let's do, you know, microaggressions at work. And as, a, as an initial study, say, like, why is it harmful? What is it doing? Why does this matter? So this burnout job satisfaction effects um, that organizations care so much about and that really hurts employees every day. Um, so we did go in having an intuitive sense, like microaggressions are, are taking up a lot of energy and resources and it's going to harm work experiences. I would have been shocked if we found the opposite, like if they were like positive, which we didn't find those positive effects, but we did go in um, expecting to see 
just that, like the depleting nature of workplace microaggressions. You know, you had um, you interviewed several. Um, and actually, I'm gonna let, I want you to confirm the number for those who don't know. Uh, but several black professionals uh, really to share their stories and experiences around microaggressions. How many folks was that again? I feel like it was like 90, but let me look. Now I got to look at the methods. Um, I think it was about 90 people. That's a lot of people. Um, in the in that summary that you gave, um, that video that you recorded about the study itself, um, your, one of your graduate students was speaking to the impact that it had on them just hearing all of those stories. Like, we're going to get into yeah. these stories a bit. I'm curious, like, a bit of meta commentary here. What was your experience engaging and sharing your research with your white colleagues or peers or just folks in your space and like and dealing with I'm assuming that some of them were surprised or disappointed or shocked like what was that like for you as a as a black woman in this majority white space in white academia to just like deal with and I'm, I'm not I'm not you didn't say this Dr. King I'm saying it so you know I'm not you know but to deal with the annoyance of like white folks being shocked at like racism like that like talk to me what did that feel like for you how did you process that yeah it's it's a very interesting phenomenon because um i think i'm honestly really fortunate at rice it's six of us in our group who study organization psychology and three of us study diversity inclusion so like you know and, and a lot of my colleagues are very interested in these things so i don't think in my direct like my department i i got a lot of like shock from the effects but definitely in broader audiences, like presenting at conferences and talking about this stuff, um, it's it's so fascinating. But it just encourages me. That's like that's why we need this work. Like anecdotally, any black person you talk to like knows this and has experienced it. But it's clear that because science doesn't include black voices in those samples, it's just not getting out there. And so I, I'm I'm not shocked, unfortunately, when people are shocked, um, but it just motivates me to be like, okay, we need to publish this, even though it may seem like duh to me, to a lot of people it's not. And now there's this citation we can go to when we have these conversations. So there's like this other concept I've been seeing on TikTok, as outside note, like one day maybe we'll have you back. I feel like uh, we can talk about, well, I'm, we can deep dive into this. I feel like social media, like everybody's like a PhD on social media. People be using these phrases and terms. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if Dr. Courtney McClooney said, has said that before. I don't really know if I heard that before, but okay. But like, I've heard this term called like weaponized uh, incompetence and weaponized ignorance. Okay. So Mm -hmm. like the idea of just like being willingly um, uh, obtuse in the name of not having to like be accountable to anything. How much of this do you feel, do you feel like any of that is in play when it comes to even having to have these conversations, even having to have these studies? Because like, to your point, you're like, in your mind, it's like, duh. And honestly, I don't, I don't really prescribe to the idea that like black folks are like inherently more conscious or aware of like what's happening. Some of it, I think is just people just don't want to know. Like, how much of that how much of that surprise or like need to have how much of that do you believe is authentic that's a really good question and it makes me think about tony morrison's quote that you know the very serious function of racism is distraction like mm-hmm. it gets us trying to prove we do have this we can do this we are experiencing this so i, I do i do agree that there is some um function 
of people continuing to to be ignorant or or ignore certain things. Um, I can't say that I've seen data on that. So I think that's interesting. I don't know if I've seen studies on it, but I do know that absolutely that takes time away from um, a lot of efforts that we could be going, you know, beyond the bare minimum stuff that we still have to get out there. Word, word, word. So, um, you know, in the conversations um, that you had in the study, and again, I'm going to Oh, no, actually, I'm going to put the link in here because uh, actually I want to let you know that King, I, I paid for this. I, I bought it. You know what I'm saying? So shout out to uh, no, absolutely. Shout out to the black researchers and stuff. And just as a personal aside, you listen to this. Make sure you actually like buy the studies. Right. Like these black folks, these these professors, these 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 researchers, they come together, they do all this work. They took, you know, sometimes multiple years of time because academia moves extremely slow from what I've seen and experienced. You can take the time to put this little $15 on the little link and download the study. I have it on Adobe PDF. I'm not going to share it with you. I want you to go ahead and I want you to buy it yourself. Okay. Buy it yourself. It's not a thousand dollars, not even $50 for me. It was like $16. I don't have some special. It was, that was just the, the cost. All right. All right. With that being said, wait, and I'll say just too, just so people know, when you buy this, I don't directly get any money. And I am also help happy to if people really can't afford it or they're like, I don't have it for that. I will send people the PDF. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's great. OK, see, now that's I appreciate dope. You supporting. <laughs> I didn't want to so I didn't want to volunteer to give away. But if you're cool with sharing this and you give your that's cool, then, yeah, yeah. hit us up. Hit me up, Zach at living-corporate.com or livingcorporatepodcastgmail.com. We got it. We'll yeah. share it. But I'm saying, if you are able to, yeah. just support the work. You know what I mean? All right. Now, with that being mm-hmm. said, you interviewed um, all these folks, all yes. these black folks, and you had, you out of those conversations, you, you pulled out themes, right? Like, talk to me about, we're going to get into some of these themes, but talk to me about how you arrived at these themes and specific codes um, from all of the interviews that you had. Absolutely. So with, um, as you shared, like interviewing over 90 people is, is really a lot for qualitative work. Usually qualitative studies have a lot less than that, but I really didn't want to miss anything. Like I wanted to get as many experiences as I could in there. Um, so we definitely read all of these interviews, right? Like the questions that we asked, we we conducted the interviews, audio recorded them, got them transcribed. And then my graduate student, Elisa and I, we sat down and we read through all of these interviews multiple times. And we started to pull what things were emerging that we saw repeating across experiences that we saw, you know, people sharing experiences that were connected to what someone else was saying. And so it really was this, uh, you know, what they call this grounded approach. Like we let the data tell us the story of what are people facing and how are some people's experiences similar? How are some people's experiences unique to create like new codes? Um, But it was, it was very, emotionally charged, right? Like the things that people shared were um, some of those quotes too in that paper are really hard to read. They're really heartbreaking and sad. And I had to sometimes just step away from it and, you know, remind myself like, this is why it's important to publish it. So people know that black people are dealing with this kind of stuff in the workplace to like motivate myself. I would call my mentor to Derek Avery and, you know, say, you know, I'm, I'm heartbroken by this. Please encourage me because, it's just really hard to read and see and want to just reach out to the person individually, of course, um, but really also trying to remember that maybe coming up with these themes helps Black people know, A, you're not alone. Uh, B, you're not crazy. You're not imagining this. It is a problem. This is what, you know, this is the term that you can use to identify what's going on. And leaders 
recognize that this is what's happening. And when these things happen, that's a microaggression and that's harming people. We're going to get into these themes because I have some specific, specific questions. You, um, in your yeah. answer just now, though, um, at what point do we pivot from microaggressions to macroaggressions? Mm, that's a great question. So um, the original work that that came up with this conceptualization of microaggressions talks about um, whether it is subtle and ambiguous in intent. Like if you're not sure that it's rooted in racism, but you, you have a feeling, you got an inkling that it is. Mm. If it's not directly saying it's about race, it's generally considered a microaggression. But if it's saying like, oh, I think this about, you know, you as a black person, um, that's a bit more overt and that gets into that macro sphere. So that's dope. See this, and this is my issue. Sometimes I feel like not. Yeah. So I could, academics like research y'all come up with these terms that are like and y'all have very clear definitions but then mm -hmm. like these people are like in these dei spaces they yeah. come around and then they like take the terms and then they like they jack up the definition you know what i'm saying because so here, i'll give you an example so how, well your definition of okay microaggression is it's subtle it might it's not overt it's not named i can't put my finger on why it's racist mm-hmm but I can, but there's something in there that I ain't, I don't, I don't like, right? Yes. But the oftentimes the way that I see microaggressions popularly defined or framed is like racism, but like not mean. And I'm like, no, that's not a microaggression. Oh, interesting. Do you know what I'm saying though? Like, I give you an example. Like if um, if someone says um, if someone says uh my first this is my first job outside of like this, this is my first job outside of retail i started as a manager at target hr manager mm -hmm. target then i got into oil and gas job all right so i'm sitting down mm -hmm. with my boss who is from buffalo new york white woman very new york mm -hmm. and i'm talking she's asking me questions i'm like yeah, blah, 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 blah. i'm talking i don't know what i'm talking about dr king whatever mm -hmm. so she goes mm. she pauses and like she you can kind of tell like her eyes kind of glaze over and she's kind of like not listening to me, she's kind of looking past me. And I was mm -hmm. like, okay. And then she said, you're so articulate. And I said, yes. Think? No, 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 no. Hold on, Dr. King. Hold I already on. know. All right. No, you know, I promise you don't know about something. I don't, I don't know. Okay, tell me. Tell Watch me, tell this. me. <laughs> so she said, you're so articulate. And I said, thank you. Because I was like 22 at the time. I said, thank mm -hmm. you. She goes, "Um, are your parents black? Mm. And I said, mm. my mom is black. My dad is black. Everybody, yeah, everybody black around here. Mm. She goes, oh. See, like, to me, that's not like a microaggression. Like, that's yeah. that's racist. Like, why did you... Why would it's interesting. The second sentence directly connects her first sentence to race. So that one gets fuzzy because usually if it would have only been like I get that in my teaching. I used to not not recently. Thank goodness. But I used to get that in my teaching evaluations all the time. And it used to drive me crazy. You're so articulate. You're so articulate. I'm like, would you be shocked if an older white male was up here talking to y'all saying the exact same thing? You know, like. Right. So that's interesting because her follow up comment was, are your parents black? As if it's it's clearly the races is referenced and mentioned here. So I'm assuming that you're you're only articulate because somebody must not be black. Yeah, that's problematic. Some non-blacks raised you yeah. to yeah. speak and elocute yourself yeah. in this way. So, all right. So now um, let's get to, back to these themes. Okay. So, yeah. um, you know, one of the things I found very 
very interesting racialized role assignment mm-hmm. um and this idea of um and then and then you have the you have the theme and then you have the you have like the sub the sub like the subcategory right the, like and so there's one that says sub- prescribed subservience within racialized uh role uh assignment and so here's the quote that i wanted to read from one of the people you interviewed, I was named the leader of the minority networking committee. The committee was set up for me to basically tell other black people how to assimilate into white culture in order to fit for promotions. I was honestly afraid of how I would be viewed in the organization if I didn't accept the position, but I did not want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I talk to me about this theme of, of racialized role assignment. And I'm, I find it, um, intriguing as someone who is exists in the corporate space, because when I think about like microaggressions and or I think about like just this experience of black, especially like high performing black folks or black folks who are seen as um, acceptable or um, or just or just seen as high, just who are well liked by yeah. uh, the white majority there. I see this in play a lot. But could you unpack a bit more about how you define this theme and more about it just a bit. Absolutely. So this theme is, is really about, well, I'll say first that I am a firm um, reiterator that we do not have evidence of biological differences based on racial categorization, right? There's lots of research that shows um, I am not fit for a certain position or unfit for a position like leadership because I'm black, right? I'm not less capable of certain things because of my race. Race is a social construct that we have created in this country for very specific um, harmful you know, purposes originally. And it now has meaning tied to it because of that history. But this um, theme is all about assuming people are and should be in certain roles in an organization because of their race. So it takes away the agency. It takes away the choice. It, it, it assumes this monolith of Black people. If you're Black, you should do the DEI thing. If you're Black, you must not be the leader here. So I'm going to walk past you to get to the next person to ask them because I'm assuming they must be the leader here, not you. Um, so it, it's all about that assumption of where people are and should be in an organization. It's interesting. I recall a couple of years ago, I was still in consulting at the time. Now I'm in like tech space, but um, George Flo- after the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. And it was curious, like how the organization presumed or kind of like just said, okay, well, you're, you should go do this or you should go do that. And I'm like, they don't even, they don't want to do that. They don't want to have a conversation to, to share uh, their trauma for you to like gawk at and be entertained yeah. by. Like, that's not what is, yeah. but let, let me ask you this though. Now I know this wasn't in the study, but you're an or you're an org psych and you're, yeah. you have, you've had an illustrious career. So I feel like, you might have a perspective on this. I kind of wonder, like, what do you think about this? Is why it's not live, but I'm asking anyway. I don't care, Dr. King. Watch this. Um, I feel like there's some black folks out there that like play into play into this in terms of like leveraging it for the sake of their own career progression. So they'll be they'll be willingly tokenized in the name of progressing in the ladder of white acceptance or, or career growth, or if they see it as a way for them to kind of like move forward, even if they don't actually care about that work, right? So the example that you gave around this quote of 
oh, okay, hey, I'm this person's in this role to really like drive, create assimilation. Or as I've said yeah. in other podcasts, highly academic turn, Dr. King, to denigify niggas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not repeating that, but I, I hear I hear you. <laughs> yeah, you see him. All right. So uh, <laughs> uh, what you know, like what like what do you say about that? Because that's a real thing, too, is like mm-hmm. I've seen people in these roles who like really will like lean into these functions mm-hmm. in the name of, hey, this is going to get me X. This is going to get me yeah. Y. Yeah, I think it's so fascinating. And literally your question just brings to mind the reason why I went into academia, because I'm always like, why? Why, though? And I know that so much that we see in organizations about, you know, black employee choices, behaviors, language, you know, uh, impression management, the all so many things are driven by these structures that tell us. Do you want to get ahead? Do you want to survive? Do you want, you know, this is this is what you need to do. And so I, I have grace for people who do what you're describing, where it's like, this is the only way I see out because I'm like, everybody got to eat, right? But I also do wonder, you know, how can we address these systems so that the people in those roles are the people who are really passionate about it, who are really connected to it, who are really experts in those areas. I think that that's a really important question, but I think right now organizations really reward what you're describing. And so it's hard to know what people's intentions are really um, sometimes, but I also understand the why, unfortunately. Did you notice in your conversations any like stark differences or points of perspective um, or thematic uh, points of perspective or a difference uh, on a, on the um, on the variable of gender, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I asked because I see this. There's a there's a quote here, my, and this yeah. really resonated with me. It's also it's kind of triggering. I need to talk to my therapist about this next week. My boss <laughs> has recommended to go to therapy, y'all. My boss has recommended right. that I not let people at work get to me. I've taken mm-hmm. that approach too, but it doesn't feel adequate because I value being respected and it feels yeah. like he's getting away with not being professional. I've also vented to several coworkers or friends about it. Venting helps more than simply ignoring the behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So we did see, um, we didn't look specifically like model gender differences, but we did see some um, very gendered microaggressions come out. Like for the pathologizing physical attributes, we saw black women talk a lot about hair. And, you know, people walking up and grabbing their hair, people setting up meetings to talk to them because their hair is unprofessional. Yes, we saw lots of those quotes. And for Black men, we saw um, the prescribed role assignment in terms of prescribed physicality. We saw, you know, Black men talking about, you know, I'm on a university campus with a suit on and people are asking me, oh, you ready for the football game? Like assuming I'm on the team um, when I'm not. And so we saw, you know, people assuming interest in or people being in certain roles that were very gendered, unfortunately. I remember this time, I think I've told the story before on Living Corporate. This is my first job. Yeah. Um, again, I was an HR manager at Target. So you HR manager at a store, Dr. King, you have yeah. your role, but then you also have to be like the store manager. You got to walk around. Yeah. Aisle five spill over here, you know, whatever over there, whatever. And so <laughs> I was doing my thing. I was on, uh, what is it? I was LO, I was leader on duty. So I'm walking around, got the walkie talkie, whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so I walk in the frozen aisle section and I see mm-hmm. this, I see a employee, his shirt's untucked. So I'm like, oh, okay, you probably, you probably must be off the clock. And I see him. He's not now, I'm, he's not 
punching this person, but he's kind of like pushing her and kind of physically imposing himself against her now. And she like mm-hmm. knocking against the dairy island stuff. It's crazy. And I said, hey. And I walked mm-hmm. over there. I said, yo, I say, yo, what are you doing? Yeah. I said, I say, I say, you can um I, I so so I when I went over there, she kind of like went away. She said, that's my girlfriend. Da, da, da. I said, I said, listen, you can get up out of here. Mm-hmm. Or I'm gonna call. I'm gonna call AP. I'm gonna get you up out of here. Yeah. So that story went around. The fact that I went up to somebody, mm-hmm. and and so the next day I got called in to my boss's office, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Zach, you can't. You uh, somehow the story wasn't about this dude being abusive to his mm-hmm. to this woman. It was about me." being a bully at work yeah he's like yeah. and he he literally said you know you're big and you're black so mm-hmm. yes he, i'm telling you dr king is crazy out here stay over there in that academia where it's where it's, it's not safe over there i'm, I'm, I'm about to say, don't, don't tell the people that academia it's is not problem. it's not it's literally not <laughs> safe at all uh shout out to dr mcclooney and uh a bunch of phds on here talking about how not safe it is yeah. in that white ivory but i'm saying though it's crazy out. It's crazy out here in the wild. So, so, yeah. um, but, but my point is, is like, that's a real thing, right? Like I've, again, like so many of these stories, they resonate with me as a man, like these themes around, I'm not gonna call them themes for the sake of your research, but like this pattern I saw of just like people mentioning yeah. respect, right? Like, you know, like, and the, how much we have to swallow, which goes back to your title of just how much we have to like, just stomach to, 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 yeah. to survive. Um, let, let me Wait, let me think that what you just said is our first thing that um anti-black stereotype expression one of the first quotes that we talk about for the assumption uh, ascription of criminality negative interpersonal ascription so assuming that people don't know how to navigate you know social interactions are not kind are not polite are not being gentle because they don't they weren't there they don't even know what you said to the person how close you got but the assumption is you were too close. You were intimidating. That's what one of the, the um, participants shared with us. I'm just told that I'm intimidating. So it's like you take these assumptions, these stereotypes about a group and you apply them to people so that anything they do is real easy to, to, to get confirmation bias up. I knew you were intimidating. I knew you were big and scary. I knew you were that way, which is really unfortunate. And I'm sorry you had to go through that because that's. Oh, listen, it, ha- it happens every it happens every day around here, you know, in terms of just yeah. like. You know, you have conversations with somebody, you give them some feedback they don't like, or you say, hey, I didn't really appreciate yeah. that, or hey, yeah. you know, you did this and I was confused, or hey, you did this and I was disappointed. That yeah. morphs into, hey, yeah. you made this person feel bad, or they felt whatever, and it's like, man, I, yeah. you know, like, we're yeah. just having a conversation, like, we have to be willing, like, in in any context, right, academic, or yeah. nonprofit or for-profit, or governmental we have to be we have our ability to communicate and have direct conversations is important right but like and it's funny because i'm not the only like i talked to several black executives on and off the record um around living corporate and again like on and off the record this is a common thing just like not having your behavior or your actions taken at like the most aggressive or negative or be, it's like being framed through this like you know, aggressive, nasty light. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And so where is space for authenticity? Where is space for benefit of the doubt? Where is space for people to feel safe in a place if they can't even speak assertively, not aggressively, but assertively with which is healthy, which is said to be, you know, a positive form of leadership communication, all this stuff that's rewarded if that immediately is assumed to be rooted in aggression. So look, now we could keep on going because I, I got some more questions, but you know, I told you I'm I'll honor your time. I will ask you this. No, you're though. Good. You're good. Okay, good. Because I, I want to ask you this, Dr. King, like what needs to happen, do you believe, for us to, because we started this conversation about, like, kind of not calling this work surface because it is not. Yeah. Right. But the distraction of some of this space and, like, the opportunity to go deeper. Um, what do you believe needs to happen so that your Black researchers such as yourself, shout out to Dr. McClooney, who's also been on the show, um, and I others- Hey, Courtney. Yo, shout out to Courtney. <laughs> she is super dope. I'm a super fan. Um, but my point is, though, like, y'all do a lot of research and deep analysis on things that, like, we as a people, Black folks, we know yeah. exist. Yeah. What will it take or what do you feel like you need to see, like, just as an academic? Yeah. To continue the conversation deeper. I will say that one of the encouraging things I've seen in the last like two years that I would love to see more of mm. is people embracing this work um, in general. Like I think that there was a time where, you know, me and Courtney's mentors, it was hard to say race. It was easy to say diversity. It was easy to say, you know, um, other things that are not race, that are not anti-Black racism. Whereas now we're seeing journals give out, you know, call for papers. Like we want papers on race. We want papers on anti-Black racism. We want papers specifically on these topics. So I think more of that is really important in journals and the editors and the reviewers really realizing that, you know, there's public research. One of my colleagues, Eden King at Rice, she's published and with Derek Avery showing that, you know, in journals, there's a higher bar for DEI research, it has to be better than other papers to just get a chance, to get a chance to revise and resubmit to a journal. And so I think more awareness of those barriers to really getting this work out and getting grants to support this work um, would be really helpful for us to keep doing the work. Yeah, yeah. I am here for the research. I love, like, you're absolutely right that like, I see, I didn't appreciate it because I'm not in this space how under-engaged, mm. under-resourced, and under-supported Black academics are and have been since this whole thing was erected. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so let me ask you one last thing. Like, you know, I recognize that you are a researcher, but you've talked to dozens of Black folks at various levels of um, in the organization. If you were to give th three points of advice to white executives mm. for uh, to create a more psychologically safe place to work, mm. what would it be? That is a great question. Such a big question too. So three pieces of advice. Um, one thing I have to say is that we often forget or organizations and leaders often forget how cost-effective and efficient it is to just ask people 
like send out a survey, an anonymous survey about like, what are you dealing with? What would be helpful for you, right? Like to your employees, actually listen and get reports from your black employee resource groups about what do they need? What would be helpful for them? Because every org is different, right? Every industry is different. And so sometimes there are things that people need to feel safe that are unique to that occupation. And so I think that leaders often try to assume what people need. And so the the first piece of advice would be to ask people what they need um, in ways that people might feel safe actually telling you that. So like I said, the, the groups that can give you a report or the anonymous surveys can be really helpful. Um, the next thing I would say is, and this is something that Courtney McClooney and I published about, which I'm really excited about. We have this paper um, from Calling in Black to Calling for Anti-Racism Resources, is that for um, Black employees to really feel safe and included, General well-being resources are nice, but there also needs to be racism um, countering action in the organization. So action specifically focused on acknowledging, directed to counter racism across different industries, right? So not just the chief diversity officer doing things, but the people in selection acknowledging, you know, the research we have on racial discrimination selection and doing something to counter the people in leadership and promotion and selection, acknowledging the research we have that shows, you know, Black people are seen as less capable leaders, you know, irrespective of, of qualifications. So what are people doing actively to counter the ways that racism just seeps into so many parts of the organization? Um, the third thing I would say would be to give Black people a break. And the, the Harvard Business Review that Courtney and I published talks about we need rest. Like racism is, you know, there's our, that, that Clark model, the biopsychosocial model of racism, that racism physically and psychologically kills. And so people need time to rest. So in addition to managing the daily microaggressions, the overt racism that's still alive and well, um, I think, you know, paid leave, um, opportunities for people to, to say no to, to opportunities that are offered to them, like leading a DEI group when they're already feeling exhausted and burnt out is so important. So realizing that people are depleted by this adversity, I think would be really helpful. Dr. King. It's been a pleasure, been an honor. Thank you so much for being willing to be on the corporate. Count you as a friend of the show. Yes. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was fun. No doubt. We'll talk soon. Peace. And we're back. Yo, shout out to Dr. Danielle King. Shout out to all black academics out there trying to do the right things by um, like really leaning into these extremely white, extremely elitist systems for the sake of um, giving our experience voice. There's something to be said about stepping into a world that frankly has been historically uh, exclusive uh, to all black and brown people, particularly black and brown women, um, and to adopt those languages and the vernacular and the jargon to then um, speak to the realities of of racism and oppression, um, it's it's empower it's empowering work. It's powerful work. It's encouraging work. I just I can't thank uh, Dr. King enough for being a guest. Shout out again to all the Black academics and um, y'all. This has been Zach with Living Corporate. Like I said, next week, 
new website, new experiences, new solutions, new resources, right? And I cannot wait for y'all to check it out. Make sure you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We had a few short of 300, y'all. Like, that's a little milestone for us. Make sure you go ahead and show us some love on there. Make sure you share this pod with a friend, a family member, an enemy, maybe. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, whatever you want to do. If you want to be passive aggressive, like you want to call somebody racist, maybe you, like, flip this podcast to them. I'm not sure. I don't, you know, do what you'd like. I can't really control you. You're grown. You do what you want to do. Until next time, peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.